else be able to do in church is be able to be honest with our faults and, you know, be able to share, hey, this is how we really are. Uh, the last thing we want is to come to a church where people put like a mask on and try and fake it. So what I thought I would do this morning is I would share some of my parent fails. All right. Uh, these are a couple parent fails that I came up with myself. I probably should have asked my kids, hey, what fails have I done that you would acknowledge? Uh, that would have been a good story. How many of you have parent fails? How many of you are a parent and you've got some of those stories where you're like, oh my gosh, I blew this. All right, I'm not the only one, so don't judge me by, by what I share here, okay? All right, there was this first story. Uh, we had a newborn baby, our first one. And we had the baby at church. That's a good place to bring your babies, just saying, uh, because I love babies, so bring them to church. I will love on your babies. But we had this newborn baby, and we, we, we had him at church, and my wife's like, here, would you hold the baby? I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. And I'm like, sure. And I had the, here, and I had the, the, the baby car seat, and I put the baby car seat on a chair, and I was like, man, look at this. I want to go and shake this guy's hand. So what do I do? As any good dad, I put the baby in the car seat. Did I buckle him in? No, I didn't. Come on now. I'm just setting him down for a second. And the baby's in the car seat on the chair. The baby kicks, and guess what happens? Everything goes upside down. Head first goes the baby. Parent failed. The baby cried. What are you doing to that child? I have no clue. There was uh, another story, another story where I'm like, oh, man, I love this. I've got this son. I can't wait to... to raise him and have him want to be like me and so he's like three years old and I'm like hey why don't you come up here and help me cook dinner and uh, okay don't judge me I didn't know any better all right so I pull a chair up to up to the stove next to me anybody know where this is going and and I think I was making a gourmet meal of mac and cheese and I, I don't know what happened. Like, I don't know if I moved the burner, and his arm fell right on the burner. It was one of those that had the rings around it. And so singed in his arm, you see these rings for where the stove was. Uh, parent fail number two. Parent fail number three. Uh, well, number three that I'm going to tell you. There's a lot more than that. Just be uh, true. Again, don't judge me. You have your fails too. I'm just the one that has to publicly share them. So uh, number three. Uh, we were at the corn maze a uh, uh, number of years ago. We had all these kids, and we're like, what a great idea. We'll go to the corn maze. The kids will have fun. And I'm going through, and I think my son was four years old. And, and he goes, Dad, Dad, I think I can do this on my own. And I'm looking at him thinking, dude, you're four years old. Of course you can do this on your own. <laughs> Come on, right? He's a diet. Of course. So... I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead of you, and you go this way, and I'll go that way. And, and so I go, I get to the end of the corn maze, and I'm like, man, where's, where's he at? And all of a sudden, you hear this yell, crying, fearful, dad! You hear this crying, you hear this screaming going on, because he got lost in the corn maze, a four-year-old. And I thought it was okay. And I hear this scream, and it's a scream of fear. It's a scream of, of everything's falling apart. Scream of, I'm never going to get out of this thing. I am so scared. Like, how many of you have ever been there in your life? You're just at the point of your life where you are overwhelmed. You are, are scared with what's going on. You are fearful because the situation you're in, your security feels gone. You're without hope. You're in the middle of the corn maze and have no clue where to go. The moment in that setting, my son says, where's dad? In that moment, how many of you have ever had that time and you say, God, where are you? Like, here I am, I'm lost, 
I'm without hope. Everything is falling apart. Everything is broken. God, where are you? You know, as we've read the story of Esther the last couple of weeks, have you ever noticed how the story creates those same emotions? Where you're reading the story and you're like, man, everything's falling apart. Like, this is not the way the story should play out. I mean, you're just wondering, God, where are you? I mean, you've got, you've got Haman, who's the villain. He's the bad guy in the story. And Haman, he goes to the king and says, hey, king, there's a group of people that I don't really like. Actually, there's a group of people, king, who aren't going to obey all of your rules. And so, king, I think you should murder all 15 million of them. And the king's like, sure, why not? Sounds like a good thing to do. And we look at the story, and, and this group of people happen to be God's people. This group of people happens to be uh, uh, the, 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 the king's wife. Her name is Esther. It happens to be her people. And we look at the story, we're like, that's not fair. Like, why would this happen? The story unfolds, and we've seen a little bit of hope. We saw that Queen Esther, who just happens to be the king's wife, who also happens to be one of the Jewish people, one of God's people, you're kind of like, man, there's hope. Like, she's in a perfect situation to be a mediator. She can go before the king on behalf of God's people, and she will talk sense to the king. Sounds really good. We saw this happen last week. She gets some courage, and she says, okay, I'm going to identify as one of God's people. I'm going to go before the king, and she invites the king, hey, come over for dinner. Come over for dinner. Let me, let me sweeten you up, and then let me ask this favor of you. And what did she do? I don't know why. She didn't ask the king for the favor. She didn't say, hey, king, don't kill me and my people. Instead, she says, king, would you come over for dinner tomorrow night? And we don't really know why. We're like, okay, well, whatever, except... The end of the story last week, Haman, he was at dinner with the king and the queen, and Haman leaves. And where does he go? He goes right by the king's gate. And who does he see? His enemy, Mordecai. Mordecai, again, refuses to bow. He refuses to acknowledge Haman's uh, official, his status, his power. And so Haman gets angry and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to build a gallows. I'm going to build a 75-foot pole. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to go before the king I'm going to ask to have Mordecai hung on the pole, impaled on the pole. And we look at this story, we're like, it's not fair. I mean, Mordecai, listen, despite his faults, he's still one of God's people, and we want him to win. Like, that's kind of how we are. We want him to have uh, good to happen. We look at this story, and we say, God, where are you? God, why are you allowing these bad things to happen? Listen, this is what I want you to hear today. And this is what I want my kids to know. Is that your dad, despite whatever failures you have, despite the problems going around us, when you're lost in the corn maze, when you are scared and you're without hope, when everything seems lost, I want you to know dad's coming. I want you to know that dad is frantically searching through the corn maze, blazing new trails in that corn maze, because he's going to come and find you. He's going to come and rescue you. I need you to understand that this is what the story of Esther is teaching us. This is what Esther chapter 6 is teaching us, that when all seems lost, when everything seems as if God is invisible, listen, hope is not gone. God does not forget in his own timing, God will always keep his promises. And this is what I want us to walk away with today, having that confidence that even when it seems God is gone, even when it seems he is absent, that God is always there.
And in his own timing, he will always keep his promises to us. No matter what trouble we've gotten in, no matter if someone is planning evil against us, God is determined to rescue his people. In fact, in the Old Testament, he says this time and time and time again. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So that leads us into Esther chapter 6. Verse 1 starts out, and the king can't sleep. How many of you have ever had a sleepless night? What do you do to deal with a sleepless night? Maybe a glass of warm milk. Maybe you get on your phone and check social media or play a little Clash of Clans or put Netflix on or whatever you're going to do. And the king doesn't have a smartphone. They didn't invent those. He just had the Motorola flip phone back then. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. Since I can't sleep, I'm going to call the servant. I'm going to have the servant read me the book of memorable deeds called the Chronicles. This was an administrative record that said, this is what has happened in your 127 provinces. Again, uh, Xerxes is the king of the most powerful nation in the world of that day, the largest nation in the world of that day. And so uh, he, he has them, read me some of the chronicles, read me some of the stories that have happened in my, in my nation. And just by chance, just by coincidence, the servant opens to a story of Mordecai. I think, what are the odds of that? Like how big this nation is, how big, 127 different provinces. What are the odds that the servant actually opens the story of Mordecai? We heard this story of Mordecai. We read it in the end of Esther chapter 2, where Mordecai is doing his job. He's at the city gates, and he overhears a plot against the king. And Mordecai, trying to do right, he tells Esther, hey, I heard this. This is what's going to happen. Someone's going to try and kill the king. The Esther tells the king, the king investigates, finds it to be true, and the king's life is spared. Great story. And as Xerxes reads, he hears the story being read. He says, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened. And Xerxes says, what did we do for Mordecai? What was done in response to him saving my life? In that day, it would have been an embarrassment for Xerxes to actually do nothing to honor Mordecai. In that day, uh, Kings were known with generously rewarding those who did good for them. I mean, it was wise. In that day, you think about kings and queens, and you think about assassination plots. Like, it would be good for you to very generously uh, reward somebody who helps protect your life. Like, it's just good to have people who realize, hey, if I do good for the king, he's going to give me the hookup, right? And so, he should have done something, but he didn't. Now, when we read the story of Esther we see a lot of things that appear to be coincidences. You know what a coincidence is? A coincidence, the definition of a coincidence is a non-Christian definition of God's hand of providence. A coincidence is what a non-believer used to understand God's hand of providence. Because look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. I want you to circle this. Verse 1, it says, on that night. Which night was it? It happened to be that very single night that Haman is building a gallows, that Haman is preparing to have Mordecai killed. On that very single night, that is the night that the king can't sleep. What a coincidence. Or perhaps it's God's hand of providence working things out. Because isn't this how God works? At the 11th hour, when all hope seems lost, that's when God steps in, and that's when God does the unexpected you got to look at your life and, and wonder, like, how many things in my life have been a coincidence? And how, how many of them have actually been God's hand of providence? Thinking about my life, I thought, 
20 years ago, by coincidence, by coincidence, I was at school, and this cute, curly-haired girl walks in, and she has her Suzuki Samurai. The lights were left on on her Suzuki Samurai. Is that a coincidence? Because I tell you, I saw that girl, and I'm like, hey, your lights are on. She's like, it's okay. They'll turn off automatically. She flushes her hair for me. Is that a coincidence? Or by chance, was that God's hands of, of providence to allow this, this meeting, this fateful meeting with this beautiful curly-haired girl? Thinking about, again, uh, uh, how many years my wife and I prayed for a church in downtown Yakima. We prayed, God, would someone plant a church in downtown Yakima? Do you think it's a coincidence that God had me praying for this church years before it ever existed? Somebody else was going to do the work. I was just going to pray for it. Or maybe that's God's hand of providence. You have to look at your life. You want to know how you grow your faith? You want to know how you grow your, your trust in God? You have to look at your life and begin to reinterpret, reinterpret the, the data. Where instead of looking at your life and say, oh, that's a coincidence, that's a coincidence, look back and say, man, that's God's hand of providence. God was orchestrating things for me to come to this place, to this thing right here today. One more thing I want to point out just these couple verses before we move on. I want to just say maybe there's a modern day Mordecai in this room today. Maybe you're just like Mordecai where you've done the right thing. You, 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 you've done what's supposed to be done. You've done the right thing, but it seems like somebody else got the credit. It seems like you've done the right thing, but somebody else gets a promotion. Somebody else gets the glory. Somebody else gets the status. Somebody else gets the pay raise. And they get all the recognition, and you, you're not even thanked. You're not even recognized. You're not rewarded at all. And you're saying, man, man, I did the right thing. What about me? Listen, if you are in that situation, I want to point you to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. The book of Hebrews says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Listen, I want you to mark this down. When no one else notices, I want you to know God does. When no one else remembers, I want you to know, listen, God does. God notices, God remembers. And this instance, God is, is, is moving the heart of a king to suddenly realize he owes his entire life and his entire kingdom to some obscure Jew named Mordecai. Mordecai is a guy who meant nothing to the king and now all of a sudden becomes his top priority. Listen, I want you to know God notices God remembers, and God will reward us for acts that are done in his name. Be encouraged in that. Find hope in that, that you do the right thing. Listen, God will take notice of it. So in the morning, it says, Haman goes outside of the king's court. He's waiting to go in. He wants to go before the king and ask for permission to kill Mordecai. Now, Mordecai, or Haman had gone before the king and asked permission to kill 15 million people, so asking for king permission to kill one person, it's probably not that big of a deal, right? So verse 4 says the king wants to do something about Mordecai. He wants to do something to reward Mordecai. And so he says, hey, who's out in my court? And one of the servants goes out in the court and says, oh, look, Haman's outside waiting for you. And so king calls Haman in. And before, Morde before Haman can ask his question, can make his request known, look at the question that the king Xerxes asks. He says, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? 
What should be done for the man the king likes to honor? And I love the response because you get to see a little bit of, of what Haman is all about. It says that, that Haman said to himself, which means that Haman thought in his heart. We get a glimpse of what goes on inside of Haman's heart. It says, who else would the king want to honor but me? Like, who else is this great in the kingdom? Of course, there's no one else that the king would want to honor than me. You know what Haman loves? Haman loves himself. Haman loves Haman. And he is blinded to the fact that there could be anyone else in the entire kingdom who deserved to be honored by the king other than him. And so Haman says, man, since you're going to honor me, well, what can I ask for? Well, he's already number two in the kingdom, so he can't ask for a promotion. He's already incredibly rich, so asking for more money isn't going to do him much good. And he thinks, man, the only place I could go is if I could be like the king. If I could be like the king, that's probably the only thing that would satisfy my hunger for recognition and, and, and power and prestige. And so Haman's response is, king, this is what you should do. Okay, first, you should go get one of your royal robes that you've worn. Go get, your royal, go get your, some clothes out of your wardrobe and bring, bring this to the man. Let, let the man wear your wardrobe. He says, then go get, uh, go get your, your horse that has the royal crown on it. Now, this is actual thing. There's history that shows that there are horses, and the king would put the crown on the horse. That's ridiculous. Can you picture the look of that? It's like a cartoon. He says, you should put that man on that horse, and then you should have one of the most royal officials lead this man on this horse all through town in a parade, and have, it, have that royal official shout, this is what happens when you're awesome. When you're awesome, you get rewarded like this. I think it's pretty funny. I think it's pretty hilarious that this is what he does. And you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed how funny God can be. I mean, if you could picture yourself right now, or picture, picture God up in heaven, could you imagine him saying, hey, angels, come here. Angels, come here. You need to watch this. Check this out. Don't miss it. Okay? Verse 10. Verse 10 and 11. Who... He's supposed to place a royal robe on Mordecai. Haman. Who is supposed to place Mordecai on the royal horse? <laughs> Haman. Who is supposed to lead the parade throughout the entire town and say, Yay, Mordecai! It's Haman, the guy who wants to kill Mordecai. Isn't it great? Could you imagine the angels up there chuckling? <laughs> this is wonderful. This is awesome. The most noble official, Haman, he, this is so great. This is what I would call an, an incredible reversal. An incredible reversal. When you, when you begin to see throughout the story, we're going to find these incredible reversals. And that's how those stories can resolve. But before we get to that, I, wanna, I, I want you to look at the, the contrast between Haman and Mordecai. When Haman, we've seen Haman, he's all about his pride, right? Haman is all about pride. It's all about him. It's all about his recognition, his power, prestige, what people think about him. What about Mordecai? We don't see Mordecai to be a very proud man. He's not, he, he's not vengeful. We don't see him on the king's horse being uh, chauffeured around by Haman. We don't see him snickering and saying, hey, Haman, say it a little bit louder. They can't hear you over here. In fact... This text says that Haman, or the, excuse me, this Mordecai was completely silent. 
Mordecai doesn't say anything. It's rare to find a humble person like this. Someone who is given a, a visible place of significance, who's given power and prestige and honor and recognition, it's very rare to find a person that doesn't allow that to go to their head. In fact, the very next thing we read is after Haman leads Mordecai throughout the entire town on this parade, it says that, verse 12, that Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai, he returned to the king's gate. He gets this big parade, he gets made much of, and he goes right back to where he was. He doesn't say, oh, it's time for promotion. He doesn't say, I'm too important to go back to do what I was already doing. But he goes right back to serve at the king's gate. Now, one of the things I've tried to do as we read this story, it's easy for us to, to, to judge Haman. But I want to caution you, don't judge Haman too, too strongly. Because honestly, there's many of us in here who struggle with the same kind of pride, the same kind of self-love, the same kind of idea that the world revolves around me, just like Haman thought it revolved around him. Listen, there's... Lots of us in here today that struggle with that same exact thing. Haman isn't all that different than us. Listen, are you a person who craves attention? Are you a person who craves the honor and the glory and the recognition and the reward? Let me ask you this. Can you actually be faithful with the places where God has placed you? Can you be satisfied with what God has put on your plate? When you look at your life, when you look at your situation, when you look at your workplace, when you look at your relationship status, when you look at the house you live in, when you look at the city that God has placed you in, can you be satisfied with the places God has placed you? Or are you always longing for something greater? Oh, I need to achieve this. I need to get there. I need to have that position. I need to have that recognition. I need to have that, 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 that uh, promotion. You know what that becomes in our lives? It becomes an idol. Because something that we pursue to all cost. And we allow ourselves to be unsatisfied with what God is trying to do with us right here and here and now. Listen, we need to have this humility like Mordecai. And just say, hey, this is where the Lord has me. I'm going to be faithful with where the Lord has me. I'm not going to have my eyes ahead of where I want to be. I'm going to be right where God has me right here, right now. In fact, Church planting. Church planting. I think anybody who goes and becomes a church planner is probably an, an optimist. Anybody who plans a church has this idea, hey, we're going to be the next Matt Chandler and the Village Church, and we're going to change the world because of this one church plant. We're going to be the next big thing. I, I don't think you can plan a church without having the optimism. And I remember going to this church planting conference, and there was advice from a, a seasoned pastor. He said, don't pastor the church that you want to have. He said, pastor the church that you do have. Meaning, be satisfied with where God has placed you. I mean, we can, we can allow whatever it is we long for to become an idol, where we become completely unsatisfied with where God has placed us. Listen, wherever God has placed you, in your workplace, in your, in your relationship status, just be satisfied and seek to be faithful with where God has you. It'll do incredible things. So verse 12 says, Mordecai, in humility, he returned to the king's gate, king's gate. And what does Haman do? Haman hurries home mourning, in his head covered. And this is the, the turning point of the story. 
This is where we've read the story. We've heard all the bad things that Haman wants to do. And now we've come to the turning point. Where the, where the tension, the conflict between the Jews and their enemy Haman is going to be resolved. And it's going to be resolved, we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks, with a, a number of incredible reversals. Where we expect one thing, the story plays out where this one thing's going to happen and something completely different happens. In fact, remember in, in, in chapter 3 where the public decree goes out. Haman goes before the king and says, King, I, wanna, I, I think we should kill these 15 million people. And the king says, yep, write it up, send it out to the nation. And in verse chapter 4, what happened when, when Mordecai heard about that decree? It said that he mourned. It said that he put on sackcloth and ashes. He covered his face and he mourned over the death of his people, the death sentence. And where's Haman? Haman serving in the king. He's having drinks with, serving in the court. He's having drinks with the king. He's doing really good. And now you see this complete reversal. Now... It's Haman who's covering his head. It's Haman who's in mourning. And where's Mordecai? He's serving the king, serving in the king's court. Listen, this is an incredible reversal. And this is what God does. God excels in unexpected reversals where it looks like things are going this way and God comes in and turns things completely around. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things in this world to shame the strong. See, it's unexpected. We expect, well, of course, God would choose the brightest and the sharpest and, and the strongest and, and the smartest. No, it says that God takes the foolish things and the weak things to shame the rest of the world. It's an incredible reversal. This is what God does. God works and reverses the unexpected. In fact, when you look at our lives, when you look at our sin and our rebellion before God, what we deserve because of our sin, we deserve, a, we deserve to have a broken relationship with God. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from him. But again, look at this incredible reversal where God sends his own son to take the death that we deserve so that we can live, that we can have eternal life, that we can have a relationship with God. This is an incredible reversal. The fact that we can have a relationship with God because we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. This is an incredible reversal. This is what God does. Listen, this idea of an incredible reversal we get to celebrate an incredible reversal in a couple of weeks. When we look at the story of Easter, we get to celebrate the story of Easter where, where, where Jesus died. And they, they, they put him in the grave. They put him in the tomb. Story's over. No, it's not. Because he gets back out and he walks out of that grave. And let me tell you what. I'm excited for Easter. We've got plans all over the place. We've got worship stuff going on. We've got uh, preaching stuff. We've got kids stuff going on. I'll tell you what. You don't want to miss Easter because I'm going to preach a shorter message. Amen to that, right? Right? Let me just say, hey, as you start thinking about Easter, I'd love for every one of us, begin thinking about who you can invite to come with you. Begin thinking about, again, this is an opportunity for people to, to hear this life-changing message, how God can take the broken things and reverse it to make them beautiful. Be thinking about who you can invite to Easter. I would love for every one of us to say, man, who can I invite? To come to church with me. Well, I don't know. Hey, ask your barista who makes your coffee in the morning. Ask your, your neighbor who, who trims the hedges wrong. Ask 
Anybody, invite someone to church with you on Easter. Okay, that's the side note. Let's jump back in. Verse 13, I love this. Haman goes home, he's sad, he's mourning, he's covered his head, and he tells his wife, Zeresh, he tells his friends all that happened. Here's what happened to me today. It was terrible. I had to go and, and do this for Mordecai. You ever noticed how Haman and the type of people like Haman, they're always blaming their misfortune on everyone else, right? Never once does Mordecai take responsibility. For people like, like Mordecai, or, <laughs> never once does Haman take responsibility. There we go. I preach for a living. Ah. People like Haman, it's always somebody else's fault. Never once do you hear them say, you know what? God is teaching me a valuable lesson. You know what? God humbled me through this. You know what? God crushed me, but thankfully, I'm learning to rely on him. No, every time you hear someone like Haman, it's always somebody else's fault. Well, if it hadn't been for him, then I wouldn't have done this. Well, if, if she didn't say that, then things would be right. Well, if, if that person hadn't done this to me, well, if the company hadn't downsized, it's always somebody else's fault. This is Haman. And if this is you, it's incredibly dangerous. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of this idea. He says it's easy for us to rehearse all the things that have happened to us. It's easy for us to notice the speck of dust in somebody else's eye and completely miss what we bring upon ourselves. As Jesus said in, in Matthew 7, we completely miss the two by four coming out of our own eye. You ever notice that? Are you one of those people? You're very good at noticing the speck of dust in everybody else without acknowledging what you bring on yourself, your own junk. Proverbs 28 says, he who confesses will find mercy. You want to find mercy? You want to find peace? You want to find joy? Man, just be willing to own your junk, to recognize what you've got going on in your life, to take ownership of that. So Haman, he tells Zeresh, he tells all his friends, hey, here's what happened. And, and here's their reply. And this is a beautiful reply. He says, they say, listen, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, and I want you to underline this because it's powerful. He said, if Mordecai is, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely you will fall before him. They tell Haman, listen, if Mordecai is one of God's people. Now, let's just think back for a second. Uh, think back to, to chapter 3 of the story. Xerxes goes before the king, or, or Haman goes before the king. I got my names all mixed up today. Uh, Haman goes before the king and he says, hey, verse 8, there's a certain group of people. He doesn't identify them as being God's people. He doesn't identify them as being Jews. He just says there's a certain group of people. It seems that he forgot to mention. It seems like Haman forgot to mention, oh yeah, these are the Jews. These are God's people that I want to have killed. And as soon as, as, soon as his friends and his wife found out that these are God's people, you see this incredible reversal where they reverse their earlier advice. Remember last chapter, his wife said, you should build that gallows and you should have Mordecai killed on it. And now that she finds out that Mordecai is one of God's people, she says, listen, if he is one of God's people, what lies for you ahead is really bad, Haman. I don't know what makes her realize that. I don't know what makes his friends. Maybe, maybe they're beginning to recognize the hand of God seeing the providence of God. Maybe, maybe they begin to see Haman's wickedness in his heart. 
We don't really know. Except I want you to write in the margin of your Bible, next to verse 13, write Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And Genesis chapter 12, God says, talking to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the father of God's people, he said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. He said, listen, my people will be protected. And if you curse them, you will pay a terrible price. We begin to understand this story and understand the providence of God never once, never once, despite Haman's evil plotting, despite Haman's wealth and his arrogance and his pride, despite everything that Haman had done, never once had God ignored Haman and his plan to, to murder Mordecai and the Jews. God's hand was invisible, but God was not passive. God was not removed. God wasn't absent. God had not forgotten his people, and he had not forgotten his promises. And he had not forgotten his promises that if his enemies will come against God's people, God will destroy them. And God shows up according to his own timing, and he defends the cause of his people. God shows up in his own timing to right the things that have gone wrong. God's promises will always prevail. God's promises will always prevail. This is where I want you and I to understand. I need you to begin in your life. I need you to begin to think biblically, okay? Because what happens is when we go through life and there's difficult circumstances in front of us, we go through life and we're in the corn maze and we're lost and we're scared and we're afraid and we don't sense God's presence. It's easy for us to say, God, where are you? God, have you forgotten me? God, don't you care about me? We need to begin to think biblically. To say, God, I know you're here. God, I know you are up to something. God, help me begin to see it. Because that's what faith is. Faith is trusting the presence and the providence of God before you ever see it. Faith is recognizing. I may not feel it, I may not see it, but I know that God is with me. So when things happen, they aren't just a coincidence, but they're actually understanding God has a purpose and a plan for me. We think about Esther chapter 6. Esther 6 speaks to every one of us in this room today. Let me just say, listen, if you are a non-Christian this morning, I need you to hear that God's will will always prevail. I need you to understand that. I need you to hear the warning of Zeresh, that if you come against God, if you come against God's people, if you come against God's will, surely you will fall before him. Next week, we're going to see this incredible reversal where Haman's plotting to have Mordecai killed. And guess what? God's going to reverse the story. We're going to see Haman publicly suffer the thing that he never wanted. And he's going to find himself impaled on the very gallows he had prepared to kill Mordecai on. But listen, it doesn't have to be that way with you. You have an opportunity, unlike Haman, today to come to Jesus before it's too late. James chapter 4 says, submit yourself to God, that if you come near to God, he will come near to you. That if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. Listen, 
I need you to know that today you can come to Jesus before it's too late. That you can repent, that you can be changed, that you can be made right with God, that you can become one of God's people. One of God's people that he promises that he will bless and he will protect. If you repent of your sin and trust him as your savior. And listen, Esther 6 talks to you if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you know what Esther 6 is telling you today? It's pointing to Esther 6 and saying, this is your glorious hope. It's telling us that no matter what we think, no matter however we perceive the things around us, God is faithful. God is faithful even when we are faithless. That God is a God of incredible reversals. That when we are lost in the corn maze, when we are afraid, when we are overwhelmed, we may not see Dad running through the corn maze. We may not see what he's doing, but he is blazing his way through that corn maze. He is coming to redeem us. He's coming to right the wrongs of our life. He's coming to exalt the lowly. He's coming to fix what's broken. That is what God does. This is our hope in Esther chapter 6. That we might be over our head right now. That we might be overwhelmed with the circumstances. But I need you to know that God is a promise keeper. That when he makes a promise to you, he's faithful to keep that promise. I need you to hear these promises this morning. These promises. In Hebrews chapter 13, God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know some of you are in the moment, God, I don't get it. I don't feel it. I need you to hear that promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I need you to hear this promise. In Romans chapter 8, That despite the confusion we have in life, that God is working things out for our good and for his glory. I need you to hear that promise today. I need you to hear the promise in Matthew chapter 11. That those of you, listen, I know there are some of you coming in today. And you've got heavy burdens. You've got marriages that are failing. You've got kids that are struggling. You've got addiction you're wrestling with. I need you to hear if you are weary and heavy laden. If you come to him, he will give you rest. That's his promise to you. And he's a promise keeper. In Philippians chapter 4, he promises that God will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches. Come on now. That's his promise to you today. In Romans chapter 8, he says, nothing in all creation... Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. God is a promise keeper. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And if we are one of God's people, He will redeem. He will rescue. He will restore. In the darkest hours of our life, we can be assured of the final destiny that we have with Christ. That God will come and reverse our circumstances. And and one day this hope that we are clinging for will be ours. That is the God that we worship. That is the God of Esther chapter 6. That is the God I want you to know. That he's faithful. That he is coming. That when we're lost in that corn maze, we may not see it. And God is running through that thing. 
He's knocking corn out of his way. He's coming to redeem. 